0: We would take any drug, some of us, compose bizarre music, use EEG output in unusual ways, consort with psychics, tarot readers, tricksters, shamans, sex magicians, and millionaire toy manufacturers. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. And if you are interested in the quote that I just read you by Nick Herbert, you'll be interested in the book that he features in. And this is Dave Kaiser's new book, How the Hippies Saved Physics Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. This came out in 2011 with W.W. Norton and Company. This is a fascinating book that is at the same time a really wonderful way of opening up a really crucial and perhaps understudied and underappreciated period in the history of physics and is also a ripping good story and is a lot of fun to read. This is a lay in bed with, some, um, with a glass of wine and some coffee and some potato chips and read it and turn the pages because it's that much fun and it's, it's that engaging kind of a book. So the book takes us into the counterculture of the 1970s and looks at primarily, but not solely, a group of physicists working in that context that called themselves the Fundamental Physics Group, Physics F-Y-S-I-K-S. This is a really fabulously interesting group of people that includes all kinds of different personalities working on some really interesting theories that um, involve, if, if you are familiar with the history of physics, Bell's theorem, they involve things like the no cloning theorem. They involve the kinds of theories that ultimately wound up being foundational for developing some really practical applications that are really important politically, economically, and in terms of industry today, like encryption systems. Systems, among other things they were also, some of them, working with parapsychologists like Uri Geller. They were taking some drugs. They were getting into fights. They were cursing each other out, making films. Um, They were friends with each other. They're just a really fabulously interesting group of people. And so um, Kaiser's book not only introduces them as an ensemble of characters, but really respects and celebrates and allows us to understand and respect and celebrate the really important physical work that they were doing and integrates it into a story that's very much celebrating play, celebrating daydreaming, celebrating experimentation, and the kind of creativity um, that I think we we need to celebrate more, not just in the history of science, but in the doing of academic work in general. So it was great fun. I hope that's obvious to read the book. And it was also a real pleasure to talk with Dave about it. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And I hope you have a chance to read and also enjoy the book. Thanks for listening. I'm here today with David Kaiser to talk about his book, How the Hippies Saved Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Dave. And thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me about a book that I have really, really loved. And I am sure I am one among many people who's read this book who has loved it. So thank you um, and welcome to the show.
1: Well, Carla, thanks so much. I'm really just so delighted, and um, I'm just I'm I'm looking forward to our conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: So, Dave, could you start us off as is uh, traditional for the show by saying a little bit about your background, and specifically, how did you decide to come to work in the history of physics? What brought you to the field?
1: Sure. So. Um, it, it is kind of fun to think back about it, <laughs> about a bygone era. It's already historical. Um, so, you know, I, I was—I um, think perhaps like like many of us in our in our beloved field—I was totally enamored of um, science as a kid. I mean, really, like elementary, certainly through junior high and high school. And um, one of the ways that that uh, that real sort of interest. Um, you know, sort of took hold. Or one of the things I loved to do, especially in, as a high school kid, was read um, just a lot of popular science books. And there were some you know great classics. In fact, I honestly, I remember um, some very fond memories of getting a bunch <clears throat> from my dad. They've been these sort of inexpensive paperbacks from when he was a kid from the nineteen fifties. These so-called mentor classics. You know, like twenty five cents a copy. You know, these great great classics. You know, some fragile, fraying books that that were just um, you know, really, you know, like I just love these books and books by people like, you know, the, some of the great sort of scientist popularizers like George Gamow, who helped invent the Big Bang model and um, uh, Albert Einstein himself and all these. I would just basically devour these things. It was also when I was when I was sort of discovering this this interest, it was, as I now know, it in in hindsight, I think it turned out to have been a real boom in popular science, especially popular physics publishing, at least in English, at least in the U.S., or maybe North America more broadly. So this was a time when some authors, um, so newer authors were were really avidly entering the genre. People like um, John Gribben and Paul Davies and people who had, who had had a very advanced physics backgrounds that, in fact, still work in physics as researchers, but had discovered um, a kind of flair for popular physics writing as well. So I just would, I mean, I would eat these things up. I loved them. One after the other, I couldn't get enough. Um, And so one of the things that, uh, one aspect that I remember really Enjoying about some of these books was was the, the kind of human element, it was, I guess about as well I, as I could have formed it at the time. You again as like a high school kid, um, and the human element in a lot of these books often meant what we what I would now consider. I think many of us would consider kind of you know baldly hagiographic portraits of great men, right? But but nonetheless, as a kid, I mean I was totally entranced by these kind of heroic narratives of lonesome genius. Um, so I got to college, you know, as an undergraduate already completely committed, like from the moment I stepped on campus, I wanted to be a physics major and learn more about this amazing stuff about, you know, time, space, matter, quantum theory, relativity, things I'd gotten a little kind of nibble about in a very um, kind of qualitative way from these beloved books. Uh, and and I and I already had this kind of interest in, in what I'll say, the kind of human element or the people behind the ideas or something kind of not well formed like that. And I, I must say, I had the enormous, great good fortune. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and and, um, uh, it it still has a small liberal arts undergraduate college feel. There are doctoral programs, including in physics and other areas. But certainly my experience as an undergraduate there was was an amazing focus on the undergraduates um, ourselves. And so I remember literally in my first week on campus before classes had started, I met someone who had become enormously influential to me. One of my real physics mentors, who at the time, I guess, was, must have been department head of our you know, not very big physics department there at, at Dartmouth, uh, a physicist named Joseph Harris. And Joe basically said to me, you know, there are people who do this thing for a living. <laughs> There's a thing called the history of science. And I sat there saying, what? And he said, it's actually really cool. And it's not just about Kind of crazy heroic stories. This was coming from, you know, a senior, accomplished expert in general relativity. He'd been a postdoc under Werner Heisenberg. He was an older, you know, guy nearing nearing you know later stages of his career. Even when I got to know him, and, and yet he was the one saying, you know, yes, come into physics, and yes, you know, you should be a physics major and we'll do great stuff. And then he said, but but you know, if these other things are of interest, don't don't only take your physics courses. To his an amazing credit, I mean, Joe really has has remained a deep inspiration to me. And so it was another element of good fortune that Dartmouth already had on its faculty, Rich Kremer, who was who became an enormously important uh, mentor uh, to me as an undergraduate. He was the sort of he was the historian of science in Hanover, New Hampshire, at least back in the day. Uh, and then my first year in college, Dartmouth had just hired Naomi Reskes, fresh from her PhD. In fact, I always joke that Naomi had to fly back to Stanford to defend her dissertation, you know, like midway through her first year of teaching. It was that she was that fresh out of graduate school. And I was, you know, a wide-eyed 18-year-old who had just been told there's this thing called the history of science. And then, like, in my backyard, we had two great, great, exciting stories of science, you know, uh, a stone throw away because the campus is so small uh and so so i had a real encouragement i, I mean beyond encouragement a real eye opening uh encounter with this really as i say sort of beloved soft spoken older um theoretical physicist who had his own you know deep Respect and admiration for this thing called the history science that wasn't just old physicist memoirs it wasn't only sort of heroic tales that Joe Joe in fact was for many years a dues paying member of the history science society uh, before I went along where I was he you know i would uh, we stayed in touch of course all through. college and even beyond. And I remember later in college, uh, he would ask me each semester, you know, what other classes am I taking besides my little physics major classes? Uh, And I took a course in, you know, sort of survey in Islamic history, for example, an undergraduate course, which was really fascinating. And I was going to write a term paper on history of um, basically medieval um, Islamic astronomy. And there's all this cool stuff on the kind, you know, lots of interesting work being done in history of astronomy, even back then. And Joe, without missing a beat, says, oh, well, you're going to look up this and this and this and this? <laughs> like the latest research on exactly that topic. It just floored me. Or I'd come back and see, you know, two textbooks on general relativity on his desk and the, and the latest edition of Thomas Mann's Correspondence, still in the German because he couldn't <laughs> be bothered to read the translated version, and then, you know, a book on Italian postmodern poetry. So, and, and none, none of which I've made up, by the way. That's literally, that, that's what kept happening semester after semester or, try, I guess, quarter system term after term up there, uh, with, with, with Joe, who was such a, a kind of friendly um, face from within physics saying history science is awesome and really interesting, and then with these you know, amazingly dynamic, young, uh, exciting teachers uh, in the field itself, uh, meaning Rich, Rich Kremer and Naomi Rescue. So that's kind of a long answer, but it, it, was, um, it was really it, it genuinely eye-opening when I, when I got to college and began learning about stuff I, I didn't even kind of know was out there.
0: Awesome. Actually, that's really fascinating to hear about. So the book that we're talking about today looks at the history of quantum physics. And it takes us from context before World War II to contexts just um, very recently, but focuses on a kind of counterculture period in the 1970s. And we'll talk much, much more about this and about that context in a little bit. So this is part of a larger research trajectory um, that you have. You've been publishing for many years work on the history of physics. How did you decide to come to E this particular topic, and specifically to write a more popularly oriented book about it. Were there any aspects of that process of writing for what I imagine is a quite different audience from some of your books um, that struck you, that were important, that are notable, and that you'd like to share?
1: Sure. That's another great question, Carla. Thanks. So, um, I would say, I mean, again, in in all honesty, I I backed into this book, and I'm delighted it was an amazingly uh, exciting and fun ride, and has continued to be. But I didn't set out to write uh, a book either with this title or in this form, I uh, was working on a on a different book. You know, uh, I would hope a book of some of some shared interest, though perhaps not a, a kind of commercial trade press book, but a, a a book expanding on themes that I'd been thinking about and publishing on for a while on physics in the Cold War, mostly U.S. based, but trying to think more broadly, with a strong focus, uh, as I've had in much of my work, on kind of institutions, on changes in graduate training, on these kind of Boom and bust cycles, especially in the U.S. uh, with physics, huge buildups of enrollments and funding and all the ancillary apparatus and then enormously devastating busts that really had kind of huge impacts on the field intellectually as well as sociologically. So that's where I mean, I was hard at work on a book called American Physics and the Cold War Bubble. Uh, and frankly, I'm still at work on that book because um, it hasn't been done yet. And what I had had in mind was I, w- I wanted to write a book on, I kept thinking about, I mean, sorry, a chapter for this other book on um, on the downturn. So we've had enormously important, interesting literature for for many years by that point. We, uh, on On the kind of boom years, on the early Cold War, maybe kind of mid-Cold War era, of American science, and again, especially of physics. Think about the big science literature uh, where, where, you know, horizons were ever-expanding and budgets were limitless. And, and as I've been especially um, interested to keep finding, you know, enrollments were growing faster than ever before. It was this enormous sea change in American intellectual life and American higher education. Uh, and, and we knew a lot about that, and I had other things I wanted to say about the kind of grow, runaway growth years of uh, the kind of coming out of World War II and Sputnik and that kind of classic stuff and i also want it became increasingly important to me that there was this amazingly sort of terrifyingly symmetrical bust that the boom years not only couldn't last forever they came to a very abrupt end you know roughly speaking 1970 or 71 or you know right around there in the early 70s and that that fall seemed at least as fascinating to me, and cur- I was curious about it as as the kind of run up to that period had been. So I figured I would write a chapter. And in my head, I kept thinking, I kept calling it that '70s chapter, like the old TV show, <laughs> that '70 show. Like, here's what get, what's it? I wanted to ask myself, what was it like to become a young physicist during during lean years? I mean, a lot of my work to that point, in some articles and the, some of the earlier chapters in this book, I was trying to put together. They were on you know, what was it like? What did Feel like what did it mean intellectually, but also you know kind of sociologically, and even to the extent we can suss this out in terms of identity and persona and all that. What did it feel like to be a, a physicist during when 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 options were expanding and, and plentiful, and then what did it feel like when when the rug was pulled out from under you know many young people in the field? So I wanted to figure out what's an in. How could I figure out what did it feel like? What was it like intellectually and sociologically and so to speak, phenomenologically, to try to make one's way in this field when when all of a sudden it, it must have seemed, I assume, sort of topsy-turvy, sort of assumptions that had been taken for granted were suddenly up, upended, and and um, it's a period of great rupture, it seemed. So I uh, I had a, a year of sabbatical. It was right after I'd um, been granted tenure, and I had this kind of usual schedule for a sabbatical right after that. And I was, you know, doggedly working to finish this book, which parts of which go back to my dissertation, and I really just wanted to finish it, and so I wanted to tackle this new material on on the 70s chapter. And so I began working on the stuff uh, and basically looked up nine months later as my sabbatical was drawing to a close, or at least that academic year was was ending, and I said, my God, what have I done? I wrote 120 pages of this so-called chapter, which is suddenly not something you want to call a chapter anymore. And I could, and by that point, I could see the story was kind of pulling skew. It clearly grew immediately out of this larger Cold War book, you know, epistemic changes, intellectual, political, economy, all that stuff uh, on the boom and bust cycles and all the rest. But it just—it wasn't that book. It certainly wasn't a chapter. And that and that was, it threw me into a little bit of turmoil at first, and uh, and then I realized there had been a growing number of books in our field by people whom I just so deeply admire. Who had, who had written very engaging, very smart uh, books with you know, trade presses aiming at the sort of mythical crossover audience, where where one where you know us nitpicky historians of science, and we should be nitpicky, can go through every single end note in the bibliography and satisfy ourselves about the use of primary sources and all that. And yet, and yet there was there was a clear attention to the craft of the prose, to the narrative, to storytelling, not at the expense of the historical sleuthing, but, you know, it was just a different kind of book than certainly that I had ever imagined writing myself. And I can tell you, I had in mind books like Ken Alder's uh, magnificent book, uh, The Measure of All Things, which had come out, I guess, around 2002 or so, and uh, Peter Gallison's book on Einstein's clocks and Poincaré's maps, which came out in 2003. I was obviously very close to Peter. He was my dissertation advisor. Uh, and uh, and these were examples among others, but those are ones that really struck me first. And since then, I came to admire you know Janet Brown's uh, amazing, amazing work on Charles Darwin. And by now, thankfully, we we can actually extend that list quite a bit. I won't even try to name them all, but but it was it, I was just kind of realizing that there was this uh, this this complementary genre that I found just so deeply um, exciting. And I really, I mean, Ken's book in particular his His book on on the uh, basic on, on the meter and the metric system, but in a in very engaging, clever way, uh, that one really um, opened my eyes and so so here I am at the end of my sabbatical, realizing I have this you know not quite book, certainly not chapter, when I could see where the story was going better than I had you know earlier and so finally, frankly, I, I decided to try to take the plunge and, and write the book uh, in this in a sort of other uh, complementary way.
0: Well, it works um, beautifully well. And one of the ways that it works, among many others, is by giving us a series of openings. So the book opens with this fabulous scene of the first electronic bank transfer that uses quantum cryptography in 2004, which takes us sequentially into a French porn magazine. It takes (laughs) us into um, an opening into the idea of the field of quantum information science. And it explains that ultimately the development of the field of quantum information science and the way that led. To the ability to do things like um, you know, bank trans- electronic bank transfers using quantum cryptography cryptography owed their origins as you put it, to the hazy bong-filled excesses of the 1970s New Age movement. So mm-hmm. already you got us hooked. <laughs> so you take us from there and, and you talking about the um, the introduction to the book and the premises to the book into another opening in the first chapter which involves a meeting between <laughs> people we will come to know quite well by the end <laughs> of the
1: book. Right.
0: The um, Fred Allen, Wolf, Jack Scarfati, and we'll talk about them, and Werner, <laughs> Earhart, in Paris, which involves, among other things, Earhart saying, I make people happy and Scarfati saying, I think you're an asshole. (laughs) And and the story unfolds from there. So Mm -hmm. just from the the perspective of prose, it's really gripping. So to understand um, kind of what brought about this meeting, who these guys are, and why this seemingly, what might on the surface seem to be a conflict, turns into um, a really fascinating um, and really sort of germinal story, we need to go back a little bit and you take us back to contextualize this. World War II marked a transformation and what it looked like and what it meant and felt like to be a physicist. And we need to understand that before we can understand the, you know, what changes afterwards and how the 1970s fit. So to start us off, can you talk a little bit about Einstein, Bohr, Heisenberg, Schrodinger mm-hmm. before the war? What was the model of what a physicist was as a bearer of culture before the war that we need to understand to understand the transformations that World War II brought?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a great um, a great way in, and so uh, th- in some sense, this was a way, frankly, for me to return to topics that had captivated me as a kid, that that helped bring me into the field of the history of science. It was going back to to an incredibly well studied era in the history of science, especially in the history of physics. This you know is often thought of as a kind of golden age of the first say quarter century of the twentieth century to put rough. Bounds on it, when uh, when much of what we would now recognize as as so-called modern physics was was being crafted by by several people's hands, not a huge number. So it's we have a kind of large cast, you know, ensemble cast account of that period with a series of, you know, colorful, uh, larger-than-life personalities uh, like Albert Einstein, like Werner Heisenberg, like the very acerbic Wolfgang Pauli and the retiring and sort of painfully shy British uh, theorist Paul Dirac and so on. I mean, we know those folks, and we know them both as historians, and and I knew I had met some of those characters as characters, you know, even as a high school kid reading these kind of heroic books that I described earlier. Uh, Some of my earliest work in the history of physics was actually on the earliest debates over what became quantum, mechanics and how how various architects uh, thought you know it should be interpreted what it imply about the world about these grand metaphysical challenges the so-called Einstein Bohr debate and, and so on so in some sense that was you know, a chance for me to return to to some of my own favorite topics so to speak my roots in the field and to really sit with and wonder about, the, again, the, the kind of daily life, as much as we might, as well as we might be able to, to to get a sense for it at some remove. But what did it feel like to to them? What did they think they were up to? Say in the nineteen teens, and say especially the nineteen twenties, uh, when the when the relevant community of quantum physicists was you know was bounded, was was modest in size, mostly. Accessible to each other by rail, you know, by train, uh, they would often have extended visits in each other's private homes, let alone in their kind of, you know, institutes and, and um, you know and, and departments, uh, and where it was a personal face to face and often explicitly philosophical. Um, endeavor. So it's not that these people weren't calculating. Of course, they thought the equations were incredibly important to get right, and they argued about terms in the equations at the level of mathematics, as we know in great detail. But but that same group, most of that uh, members of that group, also thought it was their job, and it was it was this it was what it meant to be a theoretical physicist in that era. To many, if not all, to many of those folks, that they also had to worry about what they themselves would call basically the philosophy or the interpretation of those equations, and that that was not a task to slough off, to, to, you know, to outsource to someone else. Uh, and so we have these, again, mostly kind of heroic, perhaps a bit romanticized stories that nonetheless have, have come down over the century almost of these late night, you know, um, sort of not so much late night bull sessions, but late night, fiery debates between these off-scale intellects, and then one goes to sleep thinking he won, scored some good points, and then the next one wakes up the next morning with a smile on his face because he thought of a great counterexample. I mean, this kind of giddy level of engagement um, with this new and and philosophically befuddling topic of quantum theory. And and as you say, they, they they many of them consider themselves their job to be these Kulturtrager, to be a bearer of culture, not certainly not merely a technician. That would have been horribly offensive to them to, to think. Um and and not not only a philosopher or philologist or other kind of, you know, sort of humanistically inclined scholar, but that they were they were not that, that that it was part of their job to to think about the kind of what does it all mean questions and again, a lot of that i I first learned and absorbed from the amazing writings of, you know, of Gerald Holton, which I began encountering you know, even as an undergraduate i mean i didn't invent that that's that's sort of beautifully rendered material from from generations of historians of physics that i that I enjoyed sort of getting back getting back into um so that's right so so there was that moment in time now that that hadn't always been that way in fact the job the the sort of notion of someone whose job could be theoretical physicists, that obviously has a history that had been emerging not too much before the time period we've just been talking about. You know, many scholars were dated to, you know, over the course of the 19th century and really tilted toward the later 19th century. And so the job itself is new, and these folks, sort of second or maybe third generation practitioners like Einstein, Born and then their their younger colleagues, were... were as much concerned as what their job is meant to be, what's their role in science, as they were with equations or interpretations. So, so there's a history to what it means to be a theorist, and then as as you remind us that you know that's not stable. I mean, no historian would expect this to be unchanging, and then we come to these incredibly you know jarring disruptions, which again have been immensely well studied by our whole community and, and beyond, of uh, of uh, mobilizing for World War II and and then the aftermath, and so that. It really feels like you know someone's just turned the page to a different book uh, when we when we think about uh, the sort of tales of crafting quantum theory in Copenhagen with Niels Bohr and taking strolls around the garden. I mean that type of of of, um, of notion, uh, and then we come to you know whether it's again overly sort of heroic narratives of of life at Los Alamos or, or any number of these you know just dozens and dozens, ultimately hundreds of, or thousands of, of um, gadgeteering of defense projects during the war uh, for physicists in, in, in many, many parts of the world. And, and we seem to have a huge literature in particular on the U.S. or the allied efforts. So, and again, that's, you know, stuff that many of my dear mentors and colleagues had been writing about for a long time, and I have interests in that too. So there was, there was a literature there, uh, and I had my own little, you know, my takes on that. I certainly wasn't, that was not new ground, but it was, it was really fascinating for me to sit with each of those you know, bodies of, of literature that, that our colleagues had, had worked so lovingly to, to render and to say, well, you know, something's going on here. And then to wonder in the context of this, of this original book project that I'm still working on, when we look at, you know, what's it like to become a young physicist? How does this impact, you know, training or assumptions about what it is to be a physicist and how are those being refashioned and, in, in dramatically shifting, you know, political and cultural institutional settings. Um, anyway, that seemed like a contrast worth worth really sitting with. And then this, so so the seventies stuff uh, was not so much de novo. Many of the folks whom you mentioned, like Jack Sarfati and like Van Allen Wolf, they had known about at least the kind of heroic tales of the Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg age as well. And they said, you know. Isn't it time to to return to, not to invent something brand new, but can't we recover some of that earlier spirit from from a very productive era uh, of quantum physics from, from before World War II? Perfect.
0: Thank you so much. So during and after the war, as you just described, there's a very different way of doing teaching and studying physics. And you talk about this under the umbrella of a shut up and calculate kind of a methodology. And as you put it in this part of the book, quantum physicists needed to daydream again. And that daydreaming happened and it happened in the context of the major focus of the book, um, which is a major shift in the 1970s that brings us into a group of fabulously interesting people (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, that collect under the rubric of the Fundamental Physics Group, Mm -hmm. F-Y-S-I-K-S, Fundamental Physics Group. Now, this is a group that's founded by two students with ties to the Theoretical Physics Division of the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, Elizabeth Rauscher and George Weisman. And it features many people um, that, and, it, and they kind of engage with many people that listeners may be familiar with. For example, um, by you know, running into or purchasing um, books on their bookshelves or their parents' bookshelves, like *The Tao of Physics*, mm-hmm. *The Dancing Woolly Masters*, and we'll get to this. Right. Uh, but it features two of the people that you just mentioned and that we started off with: Fred Allen Wolf and Jack Scarfati. Um, I think it's a it's a great way into this to to maybe start off by introducing. Them. I mean, they, you call them uh, a kind of odd couple. They make a film <laughs> together, and yep. fabulously interesting. So, um, if you wouldn't mind, could you introduce us to the fundamental physics group by introducing these two guys? Sure. Right now, and Jack Starfady. Who are they, and what are they doing at the point that this is um, being formed?
1: Yeah. No, that's great. And so, what, one thing I try, once I kind of got got, so to speak, up to speed with the narrative. I mean, I did try to make this. Uh, it, it, it was very helpful to me, frankly, as an historian, and, and while well, thinking about kind of description and prose, to have, again, a kind of ensemble cast where they're on the order of ten or you know, eight or ten main members of this group who found each other. This so And they and they very playfully called themselves the fundamental physics group and they misspelled physics. I always say, you know, physicists have never learned how to spell. It's, they, were, they were playful. They didn't take themselves too seriously. Um, and so certainly two kind of central, central core figures in, in, in those developments are just, as you say, Fred allen Wolf. And Jack Sarfati. So, like, like the other, almost all the other members of the group, it was certainly true for each of them. They had, you know, grown up in the field and in just in life during that kind of post-Sputnik boom. They were they were members of that generation who were told, you know, everyone should be studying physics, and there were enormous incentives and fellowships and opportunities to study physics, and more jobs than students. They enter the field uh, with, with heads full of the grand mysteries from reading books, not too different from the ones I read as a high school kid, as, as it turns out, from these you know, wonderful popular books about the deep mysteries of, of quantum theory. But then they entered the field during this exponentially increasing, humongous buildup of, of this sort of training program. Uh, and so by that point, as I've documented you know, a, a bit in this book and, and in greater detail in other places, you know, the, the kind of deep philosophical or metaphysical questions about these sets of equations that had already been kind of bled out of the standard curricula for American, especially American physicists coming out of World War II, uh, partly, not entirely, but partly under the pressure of this runaway sort of expansion enrollments going, leaving that bounce. So so, uh, Fred and Jack went into the field with heads full of the grand paradoxes of uncertainty principle and, you know, the kind of special relativity, you know, thought experiments that that lots of kids get excited about. And and then they were very talented. They went to very good programs and very well trained, but they didn't get any of of that stuff in their kind of formal training. And then they had the misfortune of basically finishing when the bottom fell out. Now, those two were a little older, or at least a little further in their careers than some of the others. So they actually had gotten jobs uh, after their PhDs, faculty jobs. In fact, they both were at... um, uh, what became uh, uh, San Jose State University. It might, might have still been San Jose State College at the time. They both had, had uh, tenure-track faculty jobs. They had come up through the ranks um, after their PhDs. Most of the other members of this group uh, were, were more caught off guard, and they were finishing closer to when the bust happened, when the job market just just deflated so rapidly. So many of the others had had a similar experience in terms of being excited about the big questions of physics, going to very, very you know, exclusive top PhD programs throughout North America for their PhDs in physics, and then cu- having the misfortune of coming out sort of at the wrong place at the wrong time, through, through no one's fault. That's just the field had had gone through this lurching change while they were basically wrapping up their dissertations. So, so Fred and Jack met uh, when they were both uh, briefly on the faculty at San Jose, and they hit it off. And I, I guess they must have realized they had these shared interests for a while. They were roommates. I think they each had gone through breakups, and they moved in to share on you know save on rent. It was a lot. It was a lot like the kind of odd couple kind of TV show. Um, and like you say, they I mean they were playful. They would make these sort of student films together on on old old home movie cameras that are like. Just crazy, and they were clearly having fun on the beaches, you know, in, in uh, California. Um, and then, and then, you know, again through sort of happenstance, through quirks and accidents of history, they happen to meet up with uh, this fellow Werner Erhard, as I described in one of the early scenes. They they start they they detach from the university. The others, most of those, never had that shot in the university, which they had certainly wanted. They, they were. They were hoping for what seemed like the normal thing to do for people in their field: get a, you know, a faculty job at a, at a good university. These two folks had had that, and they actually chose to leave it because they felt so frustrated by the uh, lack of resources. This and Fred Allen Wolf spoke to me in particular about this, even at decades removed, you know, the, the so-called you know Reagan era, Reagan revolution when Ronald Reagan became governor of the state of California, long before he became president of the United States, and at least certainly to Fred's mind, and obviously not only to Fred's, there was a wave of these sort of huge wrenching budget cuts and shifts in priority that that were felt especially in higher education, state universities, and state colleges. So these folks thought that, you know, the, the apple was rotten. They'd they been primed for this thing, and and it just wasn't at all what they had in mind. And they're kind of, Eyes were being opened to you know lots and lots of curious, weird ideas. Uh, so they, they chose to leave that that maybe more familiar terrain. The others, so to speak, never never quite got into it. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, they're part of this group called the Fundamental Physics Group. And so you talk about the nature of this group's meetings. You also say, and this is what brings about the title, or this is the um, claim from which the title derives, the Fundamental Physics Group saved physics. And this is a reference to Thomas Cahill's How the Irish Saved Civilization. Right. In the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that they saved physics in three ways. And so for the rest of our conversation, we're going to take a look at each of those ways in turn because they open up larger aspects of this really fascinating not just story but conglomeration instead of intersecting and in entangled stories. So first the first way you say they saved physics is that they saved it by style or method. They opened up a space kind of philosophical reflection and speculation that, as we just uh, briefly talked about earlier, had fallen out of physics in the war and in the, me- the immediate post-war period. So one of the things that brought them to this kind of speculative um, mode of doing physics was an interest in parapsychological or psi phenomena. They were fascinated with the work of Yuri Geller. Many of them were working on um, ways of bringing together uh, how to think about consciousness playing a role in quantum mechanics um, and so on. So, can you talk a little bit about maybe the most um, exciting for you aspects of this? Set of endeavors in which they were exploring um, parapsychological phenomena. What's most, what's maybe the aspect of that that's most striking to you um, about this larger frame?
1: Yeah. So actually, two two separate notions. You asked for one, I'll give you two. <laughs> so two two different ideas that, that I think um, that come to mind. One, and this is really as I then tried to structure you know the main part of the book, mm-hmm. is seeing how these folks were you know frankly very creative and very we might say. Entrepreneurial, or at least you know, um, opportunistic—not not meant in a negative way. But they, you know, they they were finishing, as I say, grad school at just the wrong time. Resources were totally different than what would, what than what was the norm, uh, not too long before. And they they carved out a new. They basically made a kind of parallel universe for themselves. Uh, and what does that mean? That means you know you need. Places to meet. You need at least some modest amount of funds. You, know, you need some kind of research support. You need some way to communicate your findings. So you need you need something. So it's not just a bunch of folks meeting in a room and then, you know, amusing themselves before they go break for pizza. They wanted something like an infrastructure, even though it was not going to be the kind of traditional one or the one that might have been expected. So part of what I found fascinating is just, frankly, how successful they were, at least for, you know, several years. We can, we can argue about success or failure in, in the longevity of what they carved out. But, you know, they were they were, as far as I could tell, from thousands of pages of informal notes and correspondence and letters from the time, as well as being able to talk with them, this is recent history. They're all alive. I was able to talk with them. They were quite generous with their time. So, from a variety of types of sources, then and now, they clearly seem to have been having a lot of fun. First of all, in in sort of what might have been very depressing or at least you know uncertain times for young scientists, they you know they were they were playful and they were deeply curious, sometimes a little frank, a little nutty, but they were but they didn't always take themselves too seriously. They could be a little nutty. You could afford that, you know. But also disciplined. They'd done their PhDs at really top programs. They knew how to calculate. They had published in the mainstream journals along their training, along the way. Uh, and, 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 here, and they were just sort of creative and, again, entrepreneurial in hitting up alternate ways to you know, get at least a little cash flowing, have a place to keep meeting, uh, spread the word in a variety of settings. Uh, so the parallel universe part, they made up sort of their own version of a kind of physicist's infrastructure, modest. You know, they were theorists. They didn't need you know, nuclear reactors for their work. But even so, you know they needed something, and they and they cobbled it together to, to their credit, and you know in an uncertain time. That was part one. Part two. What else I found so fascinating about following their interests, in, especially into some of their interests into these more kind of uh, off the beaten path or not mainstream scientific topics, at least by by our current you know, view of things, like mind reading, like the, sort of all things occult and new age. One of the things that fascinated me was actually how uh, even there, many of these folks were returning to what had been actually much more common in an era that they already um, had been longing for, which is to say in the 1920s and 30s, among many of the you know giants who helped make quantum mechanics. So I really hadn't personally been aware of just how deeply Erwin Schrödinger had become fascinated with uh, Hindu scriptures to the point that at one point he tried to learn Sanskrit, and you know he would yell at reporters who tried to downplay that stuff. He said, "Don't don't be so quick to dismiss it." Um, I mean, everyone in history of physics knows that Niels Bohr uh, adopted the yin yang symbol for his family coat of arms. But but even beyond that, was also deeply interested in in elements of Eastern thought as well as other more Western philosophical traditions. Uh, and again, it had been newer to me until I dug into this. Pascal Jordan, one of the great architects uh, of quantum mechanics, uh, a partner of Werner Heisenberg in the early years, he he went gaga. He went crazy for uh, mind reading and ESP stuff and worked on it not once or twice but over a span of decades. Uh, Very, very, you know person, who we still think of the so-called by the three-man paper. He's one of those three, uh, and and also was nursing for a long period of his life, a, an avid interest, I mean, an, a, a devoted interest in like, in ESP stuff. And then, you know, Wolfgang Pauli, who could be so mean, is so acerbic, I mean, incredibly smart and gifted, and Heisenberg's main kind of interlocutor, and a Nobel laureate in his own right. I mean, look, no one can take away, you know, Pauli's physics chops, right? But he also you know, developed a close Friendship with Carl Jung, and Pauli kept his own dream diary again for years and amassed something like 400 distinct entries, so that he could, so he, you know, go through a kind of psychoanalysis. He got very interested in the history of alchemy, and you know, so that's not to say that's not to impugn those folks. It's just to say that what counts as sort of where the boundaries are of what's legit for, let's say, a modern theoretical physicist to spend one's time thinking about. Again, there there are kind of assumptions about that but those assumptions are dynamic they're historical so, so that was another aspect that I had I truly really hadn't appreciated until until I started following the 1970s gang into their increasingly broad, I, I say like Technicolor set of interests, we really kind of just blooming all over. Sometimes in, in ways you know that I certainly am not trying to endorse, that I find curious and sometimes funny. Uh, but nonetheless, they, they were pursuing them often with with a sense of earnestness, uh, and then and then following that led me to see some of the roots, or maybe we might say predecessors, uh, of folks whom no one would, would laugh at in the world of physics. You know, we still have their names on our you know and coffee mugs.
0: So not only was this cast of characters really fascinating and also really brilliant, but they also um, were engaged with a set of patrons that you introduce us to um, in the book who are an equally fascinating and equally colorful set of characters. And I won't ask you to talk too much about them, but I'll just... Mm -hmm. Mentioned. I mean, they include Werner Erhardt, they include, um, just dis- sort of descriptions of various institutes and workshops, um, and they include also a guy named Ira Einhorn who calls himself the unicorn, and you call him a Pied Piper, um, for Philadelphia's disenchanted youth, who's a totally fascinating
1: character. <laughs>
0: now in jail still?
1: Yes. Right? Yeah,
0: that's, that's right. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll just kind of drop that down and for our listeners to check out Ira
1: Einhorn <laughs> in
0: this book. Um, there's a lot of surprises there and a lot of really fascinating aspects of the story that come out of that, including a patronage of you know two of the most famous of the books that come out of um, the activities of this group, um, Gary Zukov's The Dancing Wooly Masters, which was on um, my parents' bookshelf when I was mm-hmm, growing up, mm-hmm. and Capra's The Tao of Physics. Right. Um, so I'll just kind of mention that and perhaps We can come back to that later. Mm -hmm. But first, um, before we do that, I want to get to the second way that the hippies save physics, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Mm -hmm. This brings us into one of the beautiful things about this book, which is the clarity um, and the just concision with which you're describing some what can be very difficult uh, physical concepts to understand. So I want to give us an an opportunity to talk about that a little bit because it's a really important part of the book. So the second way, as you put it in the beginning of the book, that they saved physics is that they latched onto and really rescued from a kind of obscurity a topic known as Bell's Theorem. Now Bell's theorem um, is bound up with transformations in how physicists understood the concept of locality, how they understood what Einstein kind of huffily called spooky actions at a distance, and this is all bound up into this theory that was recovered and used um, and explored and celebrated by the physicists that you talk about in the 70s. So can you take us into this part of the story by explaining for listeners what is Bell's theorem and, and what's so important about? that um that we need to understand to understand the engagement that our physicists had with it in this period
1: yeah and i should also say bell's theorem in 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 particular much like the sort of broader history of physics and all that that we talked about that was one of the things that had really just absolutely captured me as an undergraduate as a a physics student Um, I mean, I was mesmerized by that by that notion, uh, which by the time I was a student had begun to just to just begin to make it into you know sort of standard curricula. And, and as I now know, looking back, that was uh, hadn't always been that way. Uh, and so there were textbooks that that could that I could explore this further, and other monographs that I could find in, in the great library there um, in college. And, and then in graduate school, one of the experiments I got to do, I had to do, <laughs> they made all the theoretical physics grad students do one semester of undergraduate lab, and it almost killed me. It was, it was horrible. <laughs> um, uh, little old story that Michael Gordon, my dear friend in history science, was actually my lab partner in that. So you can imagine the blind beating the blind. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so but one, but Michael and I actually redid. By that point, it was like a, a student level experiment to do a benchtop version, very much like what John Clauser, whom I write about, had had done way ahead of his time—the first ever to do a laboratory test of Bell's Therm. So, so I I had just been—you know—Bell's had captured me young, and 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 still has a hold of me as one of those examples that sort of quintessentially how quantum mechanics just is stubbornly seems to be stubbornly different than either many of our kind of common intuitions or then by what we tend to call classical physics. And by now, that's a totally uncontroversial statement, and, and physicists will, will trip over themselves to tell you how important they think Bell's theorem is. But So it was all the more remarkable, when I again, when I began looking back at this, how long that took for physicists to notice it at all, to form any opinion, or even to, to know the paper had come out, first published in 1964, just 50 years ago now, uh, or to accord it any respect to say that that's actually real physics. That's a legitimate topic for card-carrying physicists to care about. Even even though now some of the early pioneers on that work, like John Clauser and some of the others, are rumored to be, you know, in the running for a Nobel Prize, you know, tastes have changed. I'll put it that way. And so I would. So that so that's another kind of more specific version of this other through line. How do we go from where we are today, where every physicist in the universe—at least all the ones on Earth that I have ever heard or seen—will uh, will agree that Bell, whether they think Bell's theorem is the last word or not, they agree that's re, That's we have to grapple with that. We, it's in all the textbooks now since basically the nineteen nineties. It's you know, we have to sit with this. There's no, this very specific notion of uh, quantum entanglement or Bell's theorem, and yet uh, you know it. It took a long, 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 long time for that to enter anything like you know the mainstream, or really even be a subject of kind of respect or attention from from the world's physicists. So how did that happen? And and that is, as you say, the sort of second. W- more specific way in that I was curious about this group called the fundamental physics group that we've been talking about. They were, you know, we can do all these sort of database citation analyses. Now we can see who in the universe published on Bell's theorem over in in, in any given year, chart it year by year. We can do these kind of quantitative data surveys now thanks to online resources. So one of the things I did was look up every single article that cited Bell's papers which is, you know, clumsy. I'm not going to say that's the final answer, but it's certainly revealing of larger patterns. Uh, and when you go through and ask, well, you know, when was it being studied? Why are these long years of silence when no one in the whole world cites it even once? And then when it does start getting cited, who are the people writing those papers? Who are the people engaging with this topic in print? And overwhelmingly, if you look at the physicists based in the U.S., which is the largest fraction of all these authors, the U.S. Physics community was enormous by that time, the largest fraction of that group uh, were this you know sort of ragtag underemployed folks who had PhDs in the field and yet most of not sort of regular or stable jobs so these the fundamental physics group were the early adopters they had sort of cornered the market so to speak on bell's theorem and they were the ones Engaging with it in print at a time before that became long before it became common, and they were doing so sometimes with extraordinary skill. And again, John Clouser, who was a charter member of this group, uh, really is was and remains, in, in my judgment, just a wizard in the laboratory. He was the one real. Devoted experimental physicist in the group, uh, and you know, put this on the map and got absolutely no, no real, you know, tangible credit for it for a long, long time. He never got an academic job. People, there's correspondence that I cite in the book, and other people have found, and that John himself kindly shared with me from his own files. You know, he wouldn't just get rejected from jobs. Department heads would say that's not. Physics. Okay. They wouldn't say he's a bad experimentalist. They'd say he has great skill, but his topic is not physics. Right? That's the level of sort of black and white as, as it seemed to many leaders at the time. Uh, so Clauser is way ahead of the curve, and then many of these other of the more theoretically inclined physicists, again, were they were no slouches when it came to calculation. I mean, they had done their PhDs. They probably knew how to you know. Uh, how to use the, the machinery, the theoretical machinery of quantum mechanics. And earlier than most, they were turning their attention to the hard calculations that would be kind of follow-on effects to, you know, to further explore the intellectual consequences of Bell's theorem, And that just grabbed me because personally I've been so fascinated by that topic you know, myself.
0: So David, for... Um Listeners who have no idea what Bell's theorem is, can you super succinctly or maybe briefly explain, <laughs> like, what is Bell's theorem? What 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 is that yep. set of ideas, especially for listeners who've never heard of this before?
1: Right, right, right. Sure. So, <laughs> don't time me. I'll try to be brief. <laughs> um, it, no, it's, look, I, I never tire of talking about. It. I, I, I love the topic because it is so juicy. Uh-huh. So, in in brief, best I can say with um, Bell's theorem quantifies, uh, and that was part of the genius of John Bell. It quantifies just how much the, as he showed, un, unavoidable predictions of quantum theory, the the essential predictions from quantum theory, how much those differ from other more sort of classically minded intuitions about how the world should work, and so and one classic way to 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 force that issue, uh, which Bell developed from, from earlier versions of thought experiments, and he tweaked them in clever ways, going back to Einstein himself, in fact, was to imagine uh, some source of particles It could be a radioactive source or even just sort of regular atoms that can, that can spit out pairs of little beams of light, little photons of light in opposite directions. And a physicist could have a detector aimed at one of those particles. Let's call it particle A. And that physicist can choose to measure some property of that particle. And there's nothing fancy or weird there. That was already routine stuff. If it's an electron, she might say, well, what's the spin, the angular momentum of an electron along the Z direction? If it's a photon, she might say, what's the polarization? But that, that part wasn't weird. She has a box, and she can choose to measure something about that particle zooming her way. Meanwhile, she has a partner physicist with an identical detector that's now aimed at particle B at this sort of twin or partner particle that had come out from the common source. And, and that physicist can choose to make measurements of the same kinds of properties. And what, what was so weird, I mean really weird, and that Bell showed was unavoidable if quantum mechanics were true, that was an if, but what's a necessary consequence of quantum theory is that those measurements, though they, they seemingly are conducted independently, even the choice of what to measure, that the outcomes of those measurements will be will line up with each other more often, quantitatively more often, than could ever be accounted for if we assume those particles behave, frankly, the way that Albert Einstein sort of had wanted them to behave, or that many, many physicists had assumed they should behave. The assumption that those particles had on their own... Independent and complete sets of properties, like spin along the z direction or, or polarization along this axis. The assumption that those particles even had a given a fixed property on their own prior to measurement leads to to empirically measurable quantitative differences uh, from the predictions of quantum theory. So, and that's why Einstein had said seen this as a possibility and wanted to avoid it. And that's why he huffed. This is like telepathy, which was not meant to be, you know, praise. And he said it's spooky action at a distance. That's bad, right? From what we know about relativity and all the rest. Nothing's supposed to be able to influence something else faster than the speed of light. And this looks, even to John Bell himself when he first wrote about it, it looks like an instantaneous... Influence. Something is somehow coordinating the outcomes of these events, even if they're arbitrarily far apart. That wasn't very brief, but that, that's my best shot no, at it. No, that's
0: awesome. Good. That's awesome. And you also um, you cite another way of describing this in the book, too, that I just want to mention for listeners because it's awesome and I love it and it involves Cambridge and bars and whiskey yes. that I love.
1: Um, <laughs> yes. So, two two Cambridges, in fact. Two yeah. Cambridges, right. Right.
0: So you, you mentioned that another way of thinking about this is if you have two twins, right? And mm-hmm. One goes into a bar in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and one goes into a bar in Cambridge, England, and each one of them is gonna order either a whiskey or a beer. Whichever one orders like whichever one that like twin A orders, twin B is always gonna order the opposite
1: right, even though there was no coordination ahead of time and, and the bartender didn't, didn't have to decide what question would be asked of either the twin until the twins walked in the bar, let alone when they set off you know, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. That's right. That, that one, by the way, I should say, comes from my very good friend here at MIT, Seth Lloyd, who's a, who's a well, we could say a latter-day hippie. He's a great, great, amazing expert in things like quantum computing and, and uh, so I ripped that off from him, which I certainly credit in the book, but I, that's one of my favorite ways, yeah.
0: yeah. It's fabulous. So, okay, so if that's the second way that Um, the fundamental physics group and their their cohort saved physics by rescuing and um, getting into and sort of rescuing from obscurity, Bell's theorem, the third way that you describe here is their probing of that theorem and the related ideas of what you call quantum entanglement, right? What is called quantum entanglement. Mm -hmm. And their probing of this um, in ways that resulted in a number of breakthroughs, right? Some Mm -hmm. um, incidental and some not. So one of those breakthroughs was bound up in something that you uh, just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, faster than the speed of light transfer, mm-hmm. and specifically superluminal transfer of information. Mm-hmm. So can you explain a little bit sort of how, why is this idea of superluminal transfer of information so important? And in what ways were um, our friends at the Fundamental Physics Group developing this um, in terms that wound up really transforming transforming? The economy <laughs> mm-hmm, the world. right, so superluminal information transfer and its ramifications in the context of your story,
1: sure, yeah, so this one again was one i, I didn 't know anything about when I began working on this supposed chapter you know back in the day when I was when I thought this would be you know a, a piece of a different project, and when I began learning about this stuff, I said, oh my goodness, this has its own. Frankly, sort of story and 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 conclusions and payoff, and it just pulled skew. And it was really when I began learning about this in particular that I realized there's this is this is a a, a book project and not you know a piece of the else. And so it culminates in in the discovery of what's now called the no cloning theorem, which again is sort of page one, textbook stuff. It's a result that was derived independently, as we now know, at least three different times. There were, you, people often know about two widely cited versions, and there was a third one that was derived as a referee report and not originally published. <laughs> but now we, we there's clear documentation. At least three independent derivations of this bedrock result in quantum theory that were derived in the early years of the 1980s. So this is as it's distinct from, but I would argue, I, I, I maintain at least as important foundationally as the uncertainty principle, this is something about deep at the heart of quantum theory that not a single living person knew until you know thirty years ago instead of a hundred years ago on the order. John Bell didn't know this Niels Bohr and Werner Heisberg certainly didn't know this uh, and this came out of very very specific and I think actually really fun to document you know <laughs> upwards downwards and sideways from very specific interactions between members of this group this ragtag group and a few other physicists who were kind of uh, accidentally and belatedly connected to them through some of these sort of funny underground networks and preprints and all the stuff that that, that I also try to describe and so, um, so so what, what were the stakes of what we, becomes known as the no-cloning theorem? The the, the mem- mem- many members of this fundamental physics group realized that if Bell's theorem, first of all, is important, which they immediately cottoned onto, and if it's, um, if it's taken at face value, as even some of John Bell's own kind of comments at least seem to suggest or leave open, it looked like quantum theory was on a complete collision course with relativity. And that might not matter to someone who studies biology, but, but I mean, to, you know, to a kid like me who grew up reading, you know, popular physics book, if I'm, if, you know, you're, if you're breathing modern physics and just, then that's, that's like, that's bad news, right? That's like saying that, this amazing, beautiful, crystalline architecture of modern physics—you know the fa- has no foundation. At least, at least that's what it, the stakes appeared to. Certainly, to folks, you know, to to the folks I was writing about in the '70s, and I think they were right about that. To see the stakes so high, it looked very much like if there was instantaneous action at a difference, at a distance, rather if there were, then how could that possibly be squared with an equally, you know, kind of important element of, uh, on which so much physics had been built of Einstein's relativity, which presumes that the speed of light is an upper bound on anything like sort of forces or influence or communication ever traveling instantaneous, you know, a speed of infinity is, is a lot bigger than the speed of light. It's infinitely bigger. So that looked like his real problem. And so what, so, so members of this group Latched on to that you know, that that um, that joint, that sort of weak joint in these two otherwise you know beautiful kind of palaces or structures of, of modern physics. And they just hammered away in their kind of late, late afternoon, Friday afternoon kind of jam sessions. Um, among other topics. So that' was when they came back to year after year and, and really with, with gusto and creativity, with a series of kind of escalatingly clever thought experiments. and so devices. at one point, Jack Sefrarti even began the process of filing for a patent. he thought he, he thought he really could. You know, signal faster than light. Relativity, be damned, and then it, and, and then it, that unraveled because people realized there was a, there was a, a tricky way that would not let that work, and that would just barely preserve this kind of unequal tr- uneasy truce between quantum theory and relativity. And then Nick Herbert, another central and very colorful member of this group, who, who's you know throughout the whole book, he uh, continues that. He thinks of, he sort of corrects the loophole from the first versions and comes, starts making actually a few generations of iterations of, of clever, kind of um, modified versions of that, trying to really force the issue. That if Bell's theorem holds up, and by that point they they knew John Clauser well, who's a member of their group, they knew there was amazingly important experimental evidence that Bell's theorem wasn't going away. Quantum entanglement seemed to be realizable in the world, in the lab, not just on their notepads. And they all certainly knew all about relativity. So Nick and, and Jack and some of the other members of the group would just hammer at that and say, Where's this going to give? Uh, and, and that's what their sort of provocations are clever and disciplined and playful. Instigations and provocations sort of accidentally made their way, uh, partly through a weird little journal that had just recently been founded called Foundations of Physics, partly through these sort of underground mimeographed preprint networks, and, and so all three derivations of what's now called the no-cloning theorem were immediate and direct responses to those thought those provocations. So that's one where I got, I said, you know, I got really much more excited. Um, and I, and I should say, maybe here's a good point to jump in. And maybe, maybe we're going to ask about it anyway, you know, the, the title of the book is, is, is really meant to be tongue in cheek. And I tried to sort of express that in, in, in the intro. Mm-hmm. Not, not all my readers <laughs> seem to have gathered that. And, uh, but I mean, so I don't think any group of eight people could save a whole discipline. I don't think, you know, Richard Feynman and John Wheeler could save. I mean, that, that's not what was the books really meant to be about um, Nonetheless, I think this group of colorful and creative, and sometimes infuriating, or at least you know, charismatic uh, uh, people. I think they they had a genuine intellectual legacy on physicists' own terms, let alone what else they might have been up to what we might, you know, love or, or find, you know, curious. But even on physicists when we sort of narrow metrics of credit, these folks had really done something and they'd really played an amazingly immediate, specific, you know, contribute contributory role. Something that we that literally we now take for granted that industries are literally being built on the top of, and that is on you know, in the opening of our Next generation textbooks, and those folks, frankly, had been written out. So I don't. It's not that I try to do history science to salvage credit for the forgotten and the downtrodden. I don't think that's what this book is meant about, is about either. And I don't think it's because they saved physics in any literal way. But there's there was something going on there, and it wasn't only cute C seventies, you know, um, stories of a bygone era. There was there was a passion and an intellectual, an intellectual stakes, and there were contributions, which is different from saving a whole field. But there was something. That stuck, and and that really captured me. I just I didn't know any of that before I joined. Before I started working on this project,
0: and some of those um, sort of outcomes were really transformative, right? Practically, so you talk about the ways mm-hmm. that this work on the no cloning theorem, or the idea that when you try to copy a quantum state, you necessarily change it, results right. in sort of a encryption system transformation.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly
0: encryption and stuff. So we're talking about really important practical transformations that came out of this really wonderfully brilliant and also very playful um, group that you're- studying and definitely I think um, yes absolutely um, the The title reads mm-hmm. I think is tongue-in-cheek
1: yes I hope so <laughs> it do- I think
0: it does I, I think it's one of the really wonderful ways that the book the form of the book really um, kind of brings the content to life and parallels the content in a really wonderful way that so many of the people that you're talking about and writing about were playing with titles mm-hmm. right we're
1: sort of yes that's right we're
0: having fun and being humorous with mm-hmm. the very serious um, work that they're doing at this same time. And I think, um, I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine um, not reading the title in that same kind of spirit of playfulness and cleverness and humor. And that's one of the beautiful things about the book from page to page is also how much fun you seem to have had, and how fun it is to read, um, as well as being a really wonderful um, and, you know, really important st- story in the history of science. So thank you, Dave.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. it. It it was an enormous, enormous amount of fun to work on. I mean truly every day that I got to work on that project over those, you know, few years, uh it, it really was it was a joy. And it was um you not because I, you know, and trying to endorse, you know, everything these folks were doing. I'm certainly not, uh but because they they were lively and engaging and smart and playful and well-documented and tens of thousands of our careful pages so i could satisfy my dust quotients and all the rest but really it was a story of in a time period that could still be documented in a way that that, I, that someone could try to rescue a kind of texture or, or the feel of it because of the variety of, you know, of, of types of documents, of archival, especially documents, which would be, you know, I, woe, woe be to the historians of the 2010s, you know, with email and all the rest. But there, there was it was a paper trail that was that was accessible and lively. It was totally fun.
0: So the Fundamental Physics Group disbanded in 1979, and at the end of the book, um, you take us through, and I won't ask you to talk about this um, strictly just in the interest of not taking another two <laughs> right.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but you trace what happens to some of the members, including Sarfati, um, including one who becomes a, a night watchman um, for 10 mm-hmm. years. Right into environmental activism. One mm-hmm. starts calling himself, among other things, Captain Quantum, <laughs> um, yes. and two becomes self-employed entrepreneurs, and then you take us also into a reunion um, that many of them gathered mm-hmm. to celebrate in the 1990s, and then finally take us into some of new, the new efforts that have been launched since um, our fundamental physics group friends um, disbanded the group, and that includes um, different institutes um, in Toronto and beyond, and you right. introduce us to this wonderful service. For a physicist,
1: <laughs> yes, yes, that's right.
0: So the story continues. The story continues, but um, but I've taken a lot of your time already. So Dave, um, there's a ton of material in the book. There, I mean, including stories, really lovely descriptions of theories that make things really, really understandable. Um, just a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. <laughs> Is there anything in particular um, about the book that we didn't mention, but that you'd like to bring up? Um, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it.
1: Well, you know, one, one thing, Carla, and I, and I really appreciate um, your comments about the book because it, it, that was something that was newer to me, frankly, very well, new, not newer, it was new to me to try to write in, in a mode that would. Hopefully, um, uh, well, you'll be engaging. I mean, we, there are many ways to be engaging. And as, you know, professional scholars in history, we have, I think we, we develop a wide latitude for, for where the kinds of prose that we can nonetheless find totally captivating. But we, we're strange that way. Uh, and so I think, and so it was, it was a great kind of intellectual adventure for me to try to frankly learn or practice writing you know in a different mode not a, not not entirely different but to emphasize things differently and on that score i have to say i had a remarkably gifted and generous editor at at the press uh angela Lipper, who recently retired but she i can't stress enough how much you know a really really gifted seasoned editor helps too uh and she helped just me think about things that i hadn't been aware of like you know we might call it characterization or emplotment or set up a little nibble here so you can come back to it there. And it all makes sense when someone explains it to you or certainly did to me. But those are not things that I had, you know, practice in graduate school. And, and once Angela helped open my eyes to that, I could see these other books I admired doing that as well. Like I say, like Ken Alder or, or, or Janet Brown or Peter Gallis or many of us who are, you know, at professional historians of science who've also written these kinds of books. So I, I, no, nothing groundbreaking there either but it was something that I enjoyed thinking through as as, as a challenge of narrative as well as um, you know, getting getting the footnotes right which was of course very important to me and another part maybe just briefly to say what I had hoped I might be able to do with this book and the a re- a gam- reason to take the gamble and write it in a slightly different way is that you know w- my my own students in physics here at MIT, and, and even when I was a student, you know, we don't we don't know a lot of this stuff. We don't, and not just about Jack Sarfati or Nick Herbert. Most of the physicists these days, most kids these days, don't even don't know about um, the once totally great central you know lauded physicists and some of their struggles with this material, like John Wheeler, like Eugene Wigner. They don't know that not that long ago, fifty years ago, thirty years ago, not. A hundred years ago, some physicists, some leading you know, Nobel quality physicists also thought very, very deeply about the foundations of quantum theory. It wasn't only in the, in the bygone era or only by kind of fringe or marginal folks. So I thought if I could try to resuscitate not their positions. I don't think Eugene Wigner was right about quantum theory in some instances, but but the, but resuscitate a, a sense that that was that really was a legit thing to do, uh, and that smart people took it seriously, and and indeed now many many smart people in the field do it again today, but that we've we've lost a sense of of the pleasures of, of not daydreaming per se, but the pleasures of of speculating, mm-hmm. and to find a kind of balance, uh, even sort of qua physicists, let alone as Educated people interested in modern science more broadly, but that it's okay to have a kind of balance between the kind of way wacky out there stuff and the kind of disciplined, rigorous, you know, often sort of quantitative approach. And that, that so there was a way to try to say, you know, lots of people thought this was important, uh, and 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 I do too. I guess that was part of part of the goal.
0: And so do I. I can get on board that train too.
1: Excellent.
0: So, Dave, now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book—it's fabulous. As I'm sure, um, I, I'm sure I'm not—I'm one of many, many people um, who really um, have, want to celebrate this book. But what's next for you? You've mentioned um, working on the project that originally um, gave birth to this book, but is so—are you mostly spending time on that? Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? And if not, um, are there any other projects right now you're working on that? are inspiring
1: you. Yeah, you know, there's there's a couple. My my rate of progress has, has dramatically slowed uh, with administrative things and all the rest. But there are there are there are three different books that I'm I'm nibbling away at, I and mean, they're all in various stages of not being done. The one that we've talked about, this American Physics and the Cold War Bubble, uh, which which is dear to my heart and which really drove a lot of the the you know, larger framing questions and themes that, that that helped me structure this this other book. Um, and and I have you know file cabinets full of stuff. Uh, that I that I am eager to get my head back into. Um, and that one's frankly closest to completion in terms of just, you know, page count and draft and where I think I want it to go. There's another one that I've really enjoyed getting my head into. And that's m- much less far along, but really fun. I think really fun. And that's, I've been thinking about it as a, a political history of gravity. And it's meant to be a playful title. I'm not sure what the final title will be. I'm sure some publisher will ask me to put the word Einstein in the title. But the idea is to look at Einstein's, really, I, I truly mean glorious intellectual achievement of general relativity, the kind of capstone, uh, in many ways, of, of much of his work. And, and that it's about to turn 100 years old. I mean, it, It's had a long, rich history. And it's at once, it, it's often held up as the as the... As the epitome of sort of disinterested basic research, the purest of the pure, we historians might wonder about how helpful those kinds of labels are. But you know, we can find many examples of general relativity held up as the as the as the ultimate in in basic pure science. It's not like nuclear physics, some might say, where that's clearly wrapped up with the state of the world and geopolitics uh, or electronics or other fields that had uh, had itself evident practical application. And yet what I've been really um, amazed by is, as I dig into it is that at every turn from when Einstein was finishing up the equations, which he wound up completing in, their, in the form we now recognize, in the midst of World War I, which affected you know, where he could travel, who he could send postcards to, who could send or receive you know, the journals in which his work was appearing. you know, The, the state of certainly Europe and beyond was... was uh, in a dramatic state, as Einstein was finishing his work, and then we go through, and it's sort of, at every turn, it twists and turns throughout the whole century, this seemingly aloof and esoteric and literally otherworldly material of generativity has been grounded, has been often constituted by very specific, worldly, uh, geopolitical, and often even military or defense-oriented, you know, projects and priorities. So so it's been really fun for me to try to piece that out. That would be a kind of century or most of a century-long story that goes from place to place as opposed to the hippies book, which is a much more bounded chronological frame and then follows, you know, one group through through their antics or through their endeavors. So that's what I've really I've actually, uh, I love it, and and I've gotten some chapters done, and and I I look forward to doing more. Uh, And then then a nice compliment with that, actually, is I've been able to to team up with another one of my really beloved uh, mentors in physics, Alan Guth, who's here at MIT, conveniently enough. And we we have a great group of physics students with whom we do physics research. They like history, science, but they're they're publishing in in early universe inflation, and all the rest, uh, which is a subject I'd studied with Alan. Uh, And Alan and I are working very hard to try to write an undergraduate uh, physics textbook. On gravitation and cosmology, we have hundreds of pages of notes and drafts, and we beta test them with our students. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to get these two different books on gravity, kind of r- wrestle with each of them, and that's been—it's actually been really fun to try to toggle back and forth because they clearly go together, and yet they play out on the page, you know, so 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 very very differently. So it's funny. It's it, it's um, I've been I've been very lucky to be able to sort of try to uh, play with each of each of those projects.
0: Well, that sounds great, Dave. Best of luck with that work. I look forward to talking with you about at least some of those. (laughs) good Um, and thank you again for making the time it's really been a pleasure the book is fabulous um, and it's really frankly very inspiring both to read the book and to talk with you about it so thank you and congrats again
1: carla thanks so much i really enjoyed talking with you and I, i really appreciate it
0: you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time